If any of you have ever proofread, if you've ever had to, to sit back and read something again and again and again, you know what a difficult thing it is. And there's many different tips and tricks and that sort of thing to proofreading things. You read things backwards. You read somebody else's work and that sort of thing. You share it. You read it out loud. Uh, you read it word for word. You, you look at it in different ways to try to find it. But, you know, it's even, even in the smallest of things, numbers, and you start looking at them and then get transliterated. I've heard a story about a man who was involved in counterfeiting. Uh, and decided that he couldn't decide whether it'd be best for him to make $10 bills or $20 bills in counterfeiting. You know, $20 bills is certainly more money, but they're viewed a little more suspectly and that sort of thing. Maybe $10 bills to counterfeit them would be better. So as he was working on the computer to, to actually set it right, he would go back and forth, back and forth, and instead of printing $10 bills or $20 bills, he printed $12 bills. Well, suddenly he found himself with a st- <laughs> She does like it. I, I, I never lack for laughter when the horns are around. I love it. There's a stack of there's a stack of twelve dollar bills that you're sitting there looking at, and he's thinking, "What am I going to do with this?" He spent lots of time, and isn't that always the way that you never discover a typo until you've run it through the copier and you've started folding and doing all that sort of thing, and then you finally look and you see, you know, the headline is misspelled even. Well, this fellow, one of the most critical points of, of his counterfeiting was the denomination on the bill, and it was wrong, $12 bills. And he figured, what am I going to do with this? Well, he was nearby, and he decided that there was a flea market just up the road. You know, it was up there in Santuck, if you've ever been to the Santuck flea market, you know. You go to the Santuck flea market, and you can start passing things off, and figured folks would just be exchanging money so quick, nobody would notice if he was passing off a few bogus $12 bills. And he came in there, and he found something he's going to purchase just for, uh, just for, you know, a few cents and that sort of thing. And, and he came up, and he asked if, if they would be able to, to break a $12 bill. And they said, oh, certainly, certainly be glad to break it. And he smiled real big. Glad to break a $12 bill. He said, yes, would you like three fours or four threes? <laughs> If you've ever talked to anybody that deals with counterfeiting, deals with counterfeits themselves, uh, you'll find that it's not, that their time is not spent studying the counterfeits, but the original, the genuine, uh, that they would actually become experts in what is real and right. Those who would work uh, in, in finding counterfeit money will sit there and study all the intricacies of it, taking the magnifying glass and looking at all the microprint, looking now at the little, the little ribbon that they put within the fabric of it, looking, feeling how it feels, and holding up to the light and seeing all the things they put in that so they would recognize that which is genuine, so crystally clear. And they study what is real so that they would notice what is fake by contrast. Well, we need to understand that that is indeed our mission in understanding the gospel and understanding our following of Jesus is by studying that which is right, that which is true, that which is the original, so that that which is phony and false just it, it appears wrong from the get-go. And that's what many have, have said as they study uh, genuine money when they finally start being handed counterfeit money it just feels wrong in their hands. We have a story before us that sets in contrast genuine and counterfeit. It sets in contrast uh, that which is, is appropriate and right and that which is, is a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of it. Uh, dealing with the kingdom. And we know, and this is dealing within the, the disciples here, so it becomes a particularly difficult uh, passage of Scripture because it's Jesus and the disciples and dealing with some counterfeit notions within their midst. 
Now, just like any type of counterfeit, uh, you're going to find that there are some elements that look like the real thing. This is a passage of great contrast. We see that picture of servanthood as promoted and put forth by Jesus. But then we see a different path uh, that is being sought by some who are following Him in that day. Let's read God's Word together. It is Mark chapter 10. We're picking up in verse 32 as we study God's Word and work our way through this great gospel. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. He's saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, that cup that I drink, you will drink. And with my baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your Word. We thank You for the Gospel as Mark has penned it for us, that we would See this moment in the life of our Savior Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, as we go over words that we may have read many, many, many times in our life, Father, even seeing things for the very first time here today, I pray, Lord, that You would impress them upon our hearts. Lord, that we would not be quick to jump to whatever previous understanding we might have just ascribed to this text, but that we would listen as You speak. Father, that we would see with your eyes and hear with your ears that the Spirit would speak to us in your word today. Father, I pray that you would be effective here today in spite of the one who who stands in front of these people. You know his limitations. You know his sin. But Father, we're thankful that your word is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and that it will accomplish your ends for your glory. Lord, we thank you that though the grass wither and the flower fades, your word endures forever and ever. Amen. It says they're walking down the road. Think about what's been going on here. Again, it's been uh, a discussion of of marriage, divorce and and marriage. Uh, Jesus talking about children and things. Uh, And it says they're going down the road, and it says Jesus was walking. 
And we begin with them being amazed. Those who were following Jesus, it says, they were amazed. Now that's the kind of word, just a little adjective there, where it doesn't give much qualification to it. It's very easy for us to read that and just keep right on reading. But I think it really places the question before us about what were they amazed? I certainly think you have to take into consideration what has been happening to this point. The things that they've seen, uh, the way that Jesus has spoken directly to their hearts so many times by, by placing that, that little child in their midst and, and by bringing the children to Him by last week as we talked about uh, uh, Jesus' uh, impression upon them about uh, the things of this world and how indeed we, we don't hold on to the, the things or the sins or the desires or the, the passions of this world, uh, but we seek the kingdom of God. They were amazed. I think one of the things that has to be amazing about this was the way that Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. That's where he was going. He's already two times told them. This is the third time he's going to be explaining it to them. But there's something in his eyes, I would imagine. If you just close your eyes and imagine that day if you were following along with Jesus. And they're working their way up to Jerusalem. And that was literally what took place to go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was was set up above the surrounding region. And no matter which way you approach Jerusalem from, you were heading up to Jerusalem. And there's something about that steadfast way that Jesus was, was making that climb, was taking each and every step. We read elsewhere that His face was set like flint, that He was intent on accomplishing that which God had for him. They were amazed, it said, and they were going up to Jerusalem. This this phrase is is common not simply for making the trip to Jerusalem, but that phrase was very commonly used for those who would go to Jerusalem for worship and go into Jerusalem for sacrifice. They would be bringing with them or acquiring when they got there the sacrifice, but in this case, Jesus was going to Jerusalem as the sacrifice. It's a powerful picture. And he pulls the twelve aside right there. It says there were those who were amazed and many who followed were afraid to be in the presence of Jesus would have been a fearful thing for many as they couldn't understand what was going on. They saw great power. They saw things happen. They saw Him as, as many would, would try to uh, endear themselves uh, to Jesus, but he would, he would point to those areas where they were holding on to the riches of this world. Like the rich young ruler who walked away sad there would have been many who just were they were fearful in the presence of Jesus. But he pulls the twelve aside. And he speaks to the twelve. And here we find the third prediction that Mark gives us about Jesus' coming sacrifice. Twice we've seen it, and in both cases, Jesus basically pointed out three items that would be coming up at a sacrifice in Jerusalem. And here there are really seven things uh, that he speaks of specifically that will take place as he goes to Jerusalem. The first thing we see is that he would be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. Very specific about who would, what would happen, that it would be a betrayal. He would not be descended upon by surprise, but he would be betrayed into their hands. And we find that in, in Mark chapter 14, that indeed was what happened. We also see that he'd be condemned to death. Jesus very specifically telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. This would have been a puzzling thing to hear. What about the kingdom, Jesus? Death puts an end to these plans, Jesus. Why? Why are you going to die? He'd be handed over to the Gentiles. 
Now keep in mind that in that day that this Jew-Gentile distinction was more clearly a divide than, than really any racial issues that we can even see among us today. That the Jew and the Gentile, that that was, that was God's people and that was those who had no part in God's inheritance in the minds of so many. Now we're going to see certainly uh, that in the, the sacrifice of Jesus and the ministry is going forth particularly as we're going to see it under the, the ministry of Paul, the gospel going to the Gentiles and a great incoming of so many who did not look back to Father Abraham as their father. But that, that Gentile divide was huge in that moment. And it would be the Gentiles that would actually put him to death. Mark 15 speaks about the fact that Jesus had to be handed over, had to be handed over to the Romans because the Jews could not put him to death that the Jews would hand him over and Jesus would be mocked. He'd be spit upon. That's also what we see. Mark 15 talks about how that actually takes place, but he's, he's explaining here that this is what's going to happen. I, your rabbi, your teacher, your leader, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I'll be mocked and spit upon. We begin this, this passage and it's, it's so very heavy. You know, I do believe that, that we could endure the idea. If, if God were to call us to be a martyr for Him, I think we could endure the idea of being a martyr as long as there was some nobility in it. As long as I could die in a mighty battle. If I know that I'm going to, to, to die tomorrow, let it be in, in, in a moment of, of honor. Let it be in a moment of valor. Let it be in a moment of nobility. And what Jesus is saying here is that my death as you witness it, will be as there are jeers and mockery and spitting. And he would be scourged. He would be beaten beyond all recognition. His body would be violated with brutality. He would be killed. All this is going to happen in just a couple of chapters as we work our way through this. But, but Jesus is, is giving in far greater detail than He's ever given, uh, especially as Mark un, unpacks all this, greater detail than He's given about what is going to happen. The things are becoming more and more real for the disciples as Jerusalem grows ever closer. But praise God, as He is explaining this, we do see right here in verse 34, it says they'll mock Him, they'll spit on Him, they'll flog Him, they'll kill Him. And after three days, he'll rise. I'll praise God that, that in the message, in the message of death, there is that message of resurrection. In the message of scourging, there's the message of glorification. In that moment, as Jesus is speaking about what will happen, he is also making that promise that this is not the end. Jesus is teaching them. And Jesus is teaching us as He is presenting this before us, he's, he's teaching us the true nature of love. Sure, the disciples had some tenderness toward Jesus, don't you think? As they've been walking with Jesus, as they've seen Him heal, as they've seen Him and they've known His compassion going out for others, as they would recline at the table, as they would laugh, as they would enjoy uh, their time together, there was great fondness for Jesus, there is no doubt. And there was appreciation of each other as they walked with Jesus, though there was bickering along the way. But Jesus knew, knew their hearts. Jesus knew their hearts just like He knows our hearts today. And I have to say, we cannot look at this passage without seeing the magnitude of Christ's love. How great, how deep 
is the Father's love for us. Now imagine for just a minute. Pretend with me this morning. Pretend that you have never heard this before. It's kind of hard. So many of us raised in church, right? We've, we've, one, of the, one of the greatest hardships we often have to, uh, to that idea of returning to our first love is kind of hearing things again for the first time. It's that idea that we've heard it so many times, and yeah, we know what's coming next, and well, yeah, we know that this is happening, but imagine for a second you've never heard the story of Jesus. Imagine this is the very first time, and He is telling you. Pretend you're there. And He's telling you what's, what's going to happen. He speaks to you about betrayal, about mockery about brutal physical assault and crucifixion, about death. With each detail, your eyes are wide. There's one question on your lips. There's one question on your heart. Why? Why, Jesus? Why? Why not continue? Things are going good, Jesus. Look at all the people that have been healed. Look at all the people that are, are rejoicing at what you're teaching. Look at the fellowship that we have why, Jesus, why can't, we get, why can't we just keep going like it is? Why the brutality? Why the cross? We, we look at a passage like this and we know the message of our Savior Jesus. It is so very simple. It is so very profound. Our Savior, He would say, it's because I love you. It is because I love you and this is how very much I love you. The teaching, the healing, the fellowship, it would all be for nothing. It would all be for nothing if I left you in your sin. If your debt was left unpaid, if your punishment was left untaken. You ask me why. Why does this have to happen? I tell you why. Because all that made Calvary a horror, all that made Calvary so devastatingly brutal, that would be yours if I did not take it. Why? How deep is my love for you? How deep is the Father's love for you? Vast beyond all measure. John 13, 1, it says that Jesus loved His own. He loved His own. He loved them to the uttermost. Some translations say He loved them to the end. Indeed, it's our Savior who gave all in love. So this is the way the story begins. This moment in the life of Jesus and His disciples. They were on the road. They were amazed. Some were fearful. He pulls the 13 aside and He began explaining exactly what to expect as they went into Jerusalem. But we set this, this real expression of love, this real expression of God honoring faithfulness, and we set it against the counterfeit that comes up next. And by contrast, it would be laughable if it was not so tragic. What happens right there? J.C. Ryle speaks about this. He says, this is the brightest of mirrors about human vanity and pride. What comes next is the brightest of mirrors of human vanity and pride. We've begun with this idea of fairness and grace. And then we look at the disciples. This is James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They come up to Jesus and what do they do? What do they do? They ask Jesus indeed for a blank check. He said, I want you to do me a favor. Carol and I have this little 
little running thing from time to time. Carol said, will you do me a favor? That depends. I know the answer is yes, but I still have to make a point. Will you do me a favor? Well, that, that all depends on what that favor is. What the, the disciples, these two in particular, James and John, have come, and they said, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. Now, who are these two men? Who are these men that have come? These are the sons of Zebedee, uh, their mother, Salome. Uh, they were always, we always found them referred to this way, James and John, James and John. Maybe it's because James was the older, but it's always James and John. And what we know about John, we, we know about later in his life, most in particular as he writes the gospel, as he writes the three epistles, as he writes Revelation. This is the man who says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. This is, this is John later in life, but as a young man, this was John of James and John, the sons of thunder. These loud, boisterous sons of their father Zebedee. During the ministry of Jesus, they were, uh, they were taken from their father's fishing business. They would have been giving orders among the crews that would have been working for the father. They left the business, a business that they probably, if it was a, a business of some size, they would have been the ones at the right and the left hand of the founder. Zebedee was right there. He was the boss, and they would have been the two sons to take over. So, so they saw kind of how things happened when, when, the leadership is passed from one generation to the next. And as they would have been for their father, remember last week, Jesus says, no one who leaves mother or father will not see it come back to them a hundredfold. That's kind of what they're asking for. Jesus, that's what we want. We, we want these things to be ours. We want to be at your right and our left, your left hand because that's where we would have been with our father. You remember, we left him to come with you. These were impulsive men. They had short fuses. There was that incident in the Samaritan village and they wouldn't tolerate Jesus' preaching and they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, how about this? How about we call down fire on them? Why don't we just have God consume this forsaken place? But even beyond that, they were James and John of Peter and James and John. Remember the three? The three who are all so often right there in the presence of Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration in the garden at Gethsemane, they were the ones in that closest company with Jesus. So they had some expectation that, you know, Jesus spends a whole lot more time with us than he does with others. But they come and they ask Jesus for that blank check of saying, do for us whatever it is we want. Now, Jesus requires that they would qualify this. A, a rash oath is a bad thing. We've already seen an experience with that, haven't we? You remember a rash oath? It was Herod that made one. When he got so worked up when his, his uh, stepdaughter was dancing for him, and he promised, I'll give you anything. There's your blank check. Up to half my kingdom. And she said, well, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he was obliged to do so. Jesus would not, would not make such a rash promise. He asked him, he says this, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left in glory. I want us to be fair with it. There was faith in that request. There was some faith there. They trusted that Jesus' kingdom was coming. And that in that kingdom, that there would be authority, that there would be power. They just wanted in on it. And in light of all that Jesus has been taught them, they, 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 there was belief there. There was some, some glimmer. Now we have to pause and, and think about that for a second. How often do our sins come with glimmers of faithfulness? 
They, they rarely come as just bare, putrid sins. They come kind of wrapped up in niceness. They come wrapped up in something redeeming. And that makes it so much harder to root them out. Because we, we find ways of dressing up our sins in Sunday clothes. And we make up colorful phrases and pious descriptions. These men, they trust in the coming of the kingdom, but their sinful ambition is what is foremost in their thoughts. Jesus, we want to be first. They had just been arguing about that, hadn't they, as they walked along the way, who's going to be first in the kingdom? And they're doing it again and in light, right on the heels of Jesus speaking about, we're going into Jerusalem and when we go in there, I am going to be betrayed. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be handed over to the the unclean Gentiles to be mocked and spit upon and scourged and killed. That's what's coming. And they said, yeah, 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 but can we, you know, this comes and all. We want to be in positions of prominence. They were seeking the best seats in the honor of this world. They were not walking in the steps of their master. They were hoping that the master would be a means to their end. And like I said, to look at stuff with new eyes is so very difficult because we know that this request is bad. We know that this request is, is sinful and that they are misunderstanding what's going on and they are misguided. We know that, so it's very easy for us to pick sides early in this and say, oh, that James and John, wow, what, uh, what, what, what ruthless fellas, what, what horrible guys, what, what nerds did you say? But we have, to, we have to stop for a second and we say, how easy is it for us to arise each day and to follow Jesus when the following of Jesus gets us what we want? That's easy. If, if Jesus blesses the path that we want to walk on anyway, that's just gravy. But how about when Jesus places our feet on paths that we don't want, that we in our hearts don't want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is the lowly path of a disciple. This is the path that Jesus has taken this very day. And right at the very beginning, it said Jesus was walking ahead of them. And the others followed. The path that Jesus calls us is a lowly and a difficult path. So Jesus responds to them. He says, do you know this path? The way he phrases it is, can you think you can drink from my cup or that you can bear my baptism? And and the truth is, in their response and Jesus' reply to them, the truth is they would. But right now they just didn't understand it. They would, but he was asking them, do you know what you're asking for? Do you know what is beyond us, what is before us? And they think they do, and what Jesus is saying to us, you don't, but you will. Or think about it, James. James, one of these two boys. What, what's, what's James' future in the ministry? It's just slightly longer than Jesus's in this world, isn't it? For he would be the first disciple who would be killed for his faith the first of the apostles who would be martyred as Herod would demand his head be taken from him. And how about John? 
How about John? Would he drink the cup of Jesus? Would he be baptized with the baptism with which Jesus is baptized? Yes, he would. He would be tortured. He would be brutally treated. He would be exiled to the Isle of Patmos and live the end of his life in isolation and loneliness. They would know positions of honor one day in the kingdom, but it would come by the path of a servant and not the one who says, just by virtue of me knowing you, I want to have a good seat in the kingdom to come. Well, the ten join in, don't they? What happens? It says the ten were indignant. They were upset. The ten heard about that. They came, became indignant with James and John, angry with them, seeking better seats than us, really? And so Jesus, what does it say there? I love this. It says, but Jesus called them, called all of them to Him. And He said... You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. That's not leadership. That's not rule. That's not authority. That's lording it over as oppressive and dictatorial. It shall not be among you, he says. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be, not last, he says, in this case, slave to all. Slave even to the last. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That has to be that key description of the life that we're called to live. Second, possibly only to, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And Jesus is painting with the same color, different brush, that we indeed don't follow Christ to be served, but to serve, to give to not seek the high positions, but to follow in lowly places. The ten are indignant, but Jesus says, I have come to give my life as a ransom. And do you understand the implications of that? I conclude with that. That Jesus, as He says, that He came to give His life as a ransom for many. What is a ransom? A ransom is a price that is paid to purchase somebody back whether it be from kidnapping, slavery, you name it. But basically, it is the price paid for a life. Imagine we were to receive a phone call and find that one in our midst had been kidnapped, and the kidnappers were holding them for a million dollars ransom. Well, what happens if that ransom is not paid? Their life is over. Right? That's what a kidnapper does. They hold somebody, and they ransom, and they demand a ransom, and if they don't get the ransom, then they kill the person. But the ransom having been paid, the person's life is bought back. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say that my life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. Or if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The life that we have is all new. It's been purchased back. It is, it is that which we wouldn't have had the ransom not been paid. He looks at James and John and he looks at all the disciples and says, don't, don't get mad at them when they are seeking a higher seat, and you don't seek a higher seat. He said, I'm giving my life for you. So give your life for others. For this is love. There is no greater love than this, that a man lays down his life. Lays down his life for his friends. And why is that love so important? And Jesus says, they will know that you're my disciples and the love that you have one for another. That's the picture that he painted. And here he takes this moment, not just to tell James and John, they're, they're being loud, boisterous, greedy boys. He says, the time will come 
The time will come when you will drink this cup and you will be baptized in this way. But you will then understand. And you will not be served, but you will serve and you will give your life. The truth of the matter here is that we give our lives and we don't give it exactly in the way that Jesus... There is a big distinction there. Jesus gave His life as a ransom for us. We cannot give our lives as a ransom for others. What we do is we do in response to the fact that Jesus has done it for us. In that Jesus has loved us, we love others. That we are kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God Christ has forgiven us. That we walk gently with others. That we serve one another. That we walk that lowly path of a servant, not seeking the prominent seats, not seeking the power and the praise. What a great contrast it is. And Jesus, He's showing them. He says, this is the genuine. This is real. Don't cling to your $12 bill. Don't don't cling to that which might look like it might be legal tender. Be done with it. Burn it. Put it away. And know that which really has value. That which lasts eternally. Praise God. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word here today. Father, we confess that we draw near to you so often just to pursue the things that we want. Forgive us us for viewing our relationship with Jesus as simply a means to accomplish our ends. Father, I pray that we would seek to serve and to live as our Savior desires, according to His pattern and His plan. Lord, I pray that we would see our lives as that which has been bought with the blood of Jesus. And Father, the life that we live today, Father, it's not our own. May we see it to be that which is entrusted to us for a season. Father, that we would invest well in anticipation of that day to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. For Lord, You don't desire first our money. You don't desire first our our things. You desire our heart. You desire our lives. Lord, that we surrender them to You. We rise and we follow. Lord God, thank You for Your Word. May it dwell in us richly and may we leave this place to serve, indeed in the pattern of the great servant, our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.